Hello, and welcome to From the Center. I'm John Hodges, the director of the Center for Western Studies, along with Kyle Dillon here, my friend and colleague. I'm glad to have you back, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, language today. I'm, I'm really concerned about the nature of language and how it seems to be changing these days, and and frankly, how it changes. What what uh, you know? What authority people have to make changes to language? I I was just uh, thinking of a kind of ironic moment that I had lately. I was talking to. Uh, a young lady, and she said something on the equivalent of, Tommy and me went to the store the other day. And I stopped her and I said, I think you meant Tommy and I went to the store. And she kind of rolled her eyes at me, you know, and she said, well, you know what I meant. Well, I did know what she meant. I did. But it seems to me grammar matters to some degree, right? But she was arguing, no, it doesn't matter. You see, whatever I say, as long as you understand what it is, I should be able to use whatever pronouns I like and like that. But it wasn't a few minutes later that she was talking about the importance of people giving you their pronouns and getting them right, you know, and that you're insulting or you're 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 causing you know violence if you're not willing to accept the, you know, uh, my name is uh, my name is John and my pronouns are he him. Now that's a common practice in many places, uh, and uh, uh, the theater world. That's where I was just uh, recently in New York, and that was common. Interestingly enough, not everybody went along with it. But and nobody pushed people to do it, you know. But it was for some people, it was the natural thing to do. So it was interesting with this one young lady that, on one hand, she didn't care about pronouns and she was irritated if somebody would correct her about them. But on the other hand, (laughs) some people's pronouns were essential to them, you know, like their identity is so wrapped up in that in their pronouns that you have to be willing to use their pronouns. So. Which way is it? You know, I mean, does grammar matter? Do pronouns matter? And if they don't, why do they matter over here? You know, and so I was thinking about that and thinking about how it is that we understand changes to language and the importance of language. How, why is language so important to us? Um, and where do we begin to, uh, to study uh, the importance of language? Now, you've been doing some teaching about this lately, haven't you? Yes, the, I have. At, this, uh, at the school. That's right, at Westminster Academy. Yeah. Tell me about what you were doing with them. So we are doing a, um, a professional development uh, series yep. uh, for training our teachers this year, and the theme is a theology of writing. And so I was asked to begin this series by doing a, a conversation with uh, my coworkers on a theology of the word. What is the meaning of the word, uh-huh. or in Greek, the, the logos? Right. And what is, the, what is its role within Christian theology? Excellent. Excellent. Wow. Wow. Was this a multiple session deal that you're doing? Mine was just a one-time, just a one-time, one-time deal. So what did you tell them? What were you talking about? Well, we talked about um, the concept of the Logos in pre-Christian thought um, and how that develops within Christian theology and how Western civilization has been grounded upon this notion of logocentrism mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. over um, the past uh, century or so that idea has been challenged, has come under attack, especially in postmodern theory. Right, right, right. So, but the, the Greek philosophers, uh, Plato in particular, but Aristotle too, used that idea of logos, didn't they? Yes, that was they did. Not, that wasn't unknown to them. Right, right. And it even goes back before, um, you know, to, to the pre-Socratic philosophers, mm-hmm. like Heraclitus, for example. You know, he was the philosopher who was famous for saying that you can never stand in the same river, river twice. twice. Right. Uh, but he also recognized that there had to be some sort of unifying principle behind all of our experience, behind all of reality. Now, we only have surviving fragments of what he taught, but he called that principle the Logos. Mm, and mm. so um, that was one of his contributions to Western thought. And then that idea was fleshed out later by the Stoics, um, also Philo of Alexandria, who mm-hmm. was a, a Hellenistic Jew, mm-hmm. contemporary of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They all contributed to this understanding of the Logos as sort of the, um, the rational principle that undergirds the universe and gives meaning to our experience. So even in non-Christian or pagan non-Christian societies like that, the idea of an organizing principle uh, or a Logos wasn't foreign to them 
but they didn't have John's perspective uh, right. about it, right? John and John one starts to talk about in the beginning was the logos. He's right. talking about the logos. And it occurs to me that when he wrote that to the Greeks, that the Greeks were not at all surprised by it, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You know, Plato even talked about the God. Right. You know? Right. So that, I can, I can kind of hear the, the, the Greeks going, well, duh. <laughs> you exactly. know, yeah, we know that, great. But it's about, what, 12, 14 verses later where he says, and the Logos became flesh and right. dwelt among us. That's when the Greeks said, this is crazy talk, I'm that's out of right. here. That's, that's foolishness to the Greeks, partly, right? Right. They, yeah. yeah, they didn't have a concept of a personal God who was willing to condescend to his creatures to enter into relationship with them. Right. Especially the notion of God assuming flesh. Right. You know, because, you know, within Platonic thought, Greek the more dualism. Perfe- the perfect reality is the world of ideas, Absolutely. the world of forms. Right. And so that's why it was so scandalous to say the word became flesh. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And the, the flesh even was not even equal necessarily with the, the ideals uh, that Plato talked about. So the, f- the flesh is sort of inferior and corrupted and like that. So, right. Um, yeah, and the you know that's that's kind of the um, that's kind of the uh, Manichaean heresy too, isn't it? That they, yes, that they divided the man into two, and and that the flesh was somehow inferior to the right. Yeah, and that's the teaching in Gnosticism. Gnosticism, well. yeah. Yep. Yep. Manichaeism is a, is a Gnostic heresy. Right. Now, the more I read about that, by the way, this is off of our topic, but the more I read about Manichaeism, we've been reading the Confessions, mm. you know, and how how Augustine was so enamored for a time of yes. the Manichae. Uh, religion, basically, it, it, it was it was older. It was pre-Socratic uh, and and Persian, I guess, Manny. Um, but uh, uh, so it's much older than I imagined. I've always thought of Manichaeism as just a, a Christian heresy that was being dealt with in the early church. But it was a religion that was in well established for six hundred years or so before the Jesus. That's so right. That's very interesting. Well. Compare for a second the the the, uh, the pre-Socratics or, the, or the, the the pre-Christian pagans like that with their understanding of the logos. Compare that with the postmodern notion of the dis- dismissal of the logos from the center of all things. There's both both depart from Christian faith, but one of them at least acknowledged something there. That's right, you know. But the but our arrogance today, it seems to me, arrogant to say that there really isn't any logos at all. In fact, some of the uh, postmodern theorists like uh, De, uh, Derrida, I'm thinking about in particular, yes. and Foucault, both of them would be considered anti-logocentric. That's you right. Say? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. For all the differences between uh, Christians and early pagans, they at least agreed that there was an objective reality independent of human experience that we are capable of knowing right. and describing and expressing in words. Mm. Um, and that is the, the, the principle undergirding this notion of logocentrism, and that's what was critiqued by postmodern philosophers like Derrida and Foucault. Yeah. So it's not just rejecting Christianity, it's rejecting the entire Western tradition long before Christianity. That's right. Don't you think? It's quite a change, quite a break from, uh, from the past. So do you think we're doing damage to ourselves by changing this notion of Logos in the center? Is that obviously a problem? Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, if, if, if we believe that we uh, inhabit a universe governed by a, a, a rational creator, an intelligent designer, yeah. who gives our lives meaning and purpose, to, to deny um, the reality uh, that corresponds to language is to deny our creaturehood right. and to deny the authority of the one who made us. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, my, my design is always to try and get into the head of the one that I disagree with. I'm, I'm always interested in trying to figure out why another human being would hold to a position that I find so, what's the word, um, not just distasteful or mistaken, but, but anathema even, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, but, but what I find is that most human beings hold to a position because they see some good in it. They see some benefit to it, you know. So what can we say about the, the postmodern mind that dismisses the Logos? 
What are they hoping to accomplish? Have you ever thought about that? Now, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, if we're, you know, considering Derrida or Foucault, both of whom were atheists, right? right I think they were uh, perhaps reacting against maybe sort of like the imperialistic abuses of Western civilization, the, mm. Id- um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of sort of imposing your truth uh, in ways that at times did um, veer into violence. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we have, you know, a history of, you know, religious wars and oppression. I mean, Certainly. there's no denying that those things happen. We, I mean, we had a debate, you know, we had blasphemy laws for, for centuries. That's part of, you know, Western history as right. well. Right. And those um, were off the way they were applied often led to many innocent people being persecuted, being killed. And so perhaps there was an understandable reaction towards, um, imperialistic notions of truth mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that insisting on a particular fact or a truth that's established and unmovable uh, is kind of um, colonializing or yes. <laughs> what's the word they like to use uh, imperialistic or something right, like that right. I'm, I'm, in, I'm insisting that you take my view of things right right, right. And, or even you know the, the term that's in vogue these days it, it's a form of white supremacy oh right Right, right. Um, and I mean, you actually see a lot of the contemporary critical social justice activist scholars make that argument. So, for example, um, one of the uh, more popular scholars these days is Robin DiAngelo. Right. You know, she's the author of the book White Fragility. White Fragility. Well, there was an earlier book that she co-authored, uh, which is a textbook on critical social justice. Uh, the title of it is, Is Everyone Really Equal? And in that book, she has a comment on the nature of language. And she says, language is not a neutral transmitter of a universal, objective, or fixed reality. Rather, language is the way we construct reality. Uh, yes. And so her understanding of language is tied to her understanding of social justice. Yeah. And yeah. how um, language, when, when we claim it is a neutral conveyor of meaning, that's actually a, a mask or a smokescreen for a form of oppression assertive power right that's right yeah. and and of course she gets that from foucault right as well right right you know, michel foucault i'm just thinking that on a kind of philosophical level uh almost metaphysical level um there's a belief about the nature of language that requires them to go into this anti-logocentric direction what i mean is once you, I guess, once you've dismissed the notion that there is a God, then when you study the the uh, economy of language throughout history and the, and the changes that happen in language, it seems like people just make up words and meaning for themselves. It's like everything comes from other words. That's Foucault's actually argument. He's actual argument. He's he's saying. Um, if you look up the definitions of words in the dictionary, you find just more words. That's right. Right? So it's sort of a circular, there's mm-hmm. something circular about definition, and, uh, and it doesn't, it's not really attached to anything outside of itself. That's right. And, and Jacques Derrida meant the same thing when he said there's nothing outside the text. That's it. It's all, what's behind the text is more text. Right. It's right. text all the way down. So... It's it's almost a requirement of the of the theological discussion that leads to this dis- dismissal of any kind of fixed meaning in in language. Um, I, I may have told you this story before, but I've got a buddy who was taking a, a graduate school class in in uh, in uh, critical not critical theory. Um, he was taking a class in in literary theory, and. Uh, his, uh, his, his teacher, his professor, said, uh, there is, in language, there are no fixed meanings. And he raised his hand in the back and he said, so what you're saying is that language has very specific meaning. Yeah. <laughs> and the professor said, no, no, you misunderstood me. I'm saying there's no fixed meaning in language. And he said, oh, I see. So you mean language has very specific meanings. No, you, kinda, <laughs> you idiot. You know? And it took him a second or two to figure out that the word no in his sentence really had meaning to him right. and he wanted it conveyed. And if you didn't get it, you were wrong. That's right. <laughs> and, and you see that, that, log, that fundamental logical inconsistency in all the postmodern 
uh, philosophers. It's yeah. relativism for thee, but not for me. But not for me. Exactly. I expect you to know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because what I'm saying is true. Right, right. Which, which is a transcendent claim. That's right. Every kind of truth claim like that is a transcendent claim, and they're denying transcendence. So, <laughs> right. How do they hold that together? Well, yeah. It, it, it seems to me that there's a a, a, a way of uh, convincing people of, of that kind of thinking that that jumps past or around or under uh, the the logic of it all. And don't you find it in studying CRT as well that there's a there's a kind of emotional connection to a particular narrative that that it, that supersedes or trumps the the uh, the logic. That it right. might it, the, any logical fallacies that may become right, right, and, and I think yeah, especially you know when, when we see like the the modern the, the contemporary adaptations of postmodern theory with like you know critical race theory or queer theory for example, right. the the principle that governs the entire system is this goal that you know they'll call it various terms but generally these days it's called equity, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and that's the governing principle, mm-hmm. and. All truth claims are subordinated to that governing principle. Um, and so if it doesn't fit that principle, it's dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's rejected as a form of oppression or privilege mm-hmm. or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's only that which serves the interest of equity as they define it yeah. that, that has a claim on people. Yeah, yeah. So where do people get the idea that they can be the authority to define words? Well, it, it it comes down to a rejection of the traditional Western conception of logocentrism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you look at the the development of Western thought all the way up until the early modern period, there was a, an agreement on how language functioned. And um, if we look at Thomas Aquinas, for example, he he says that um, truth is the correspondence of of um, uh, what is it? Our minds with reality. Right. Right. It's the correspondence of our minds with reality. And language is the conveyor of the meaning of that reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that, that's, you know, that goes, that's, we call that the correspondence theory of truth, mm-hmm. which was sort of a, a bedrock foundational principle within Western thought until the modern era. And then you start to see, um, along with sort of the metaphysical challenges to, to, to Western thought, so the rejection of God, that can't help but change the, the epistemological foundations mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, we start to see um, sort of the, initially it's the revolt of the author, and then we have the revolt of the reader, mm-hmm. you know, with postmodern mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. But that all, that, that all starts to happen once we become untethered from this correspondence view of truth, mm-hmm. the, uh, this logocentric conception of reality. Um, I love how Lewis Carroll put it in Through the Looking Glass. Mm-hmm. You may recall the conversation between Alice and Humpty Dumpty. Oh, yes, where he says and he can define the things exactly any way he wants says, to. When I use a word, it means whatever I want it to. Right. Um, and I think that really accurately encapsulates the, the crisis of meaning that we're facing in the modern and, and postmodern eras. Yeah. But if we believe, if we buy on the front end that there really isn't any Logos center, then... I don't see how we can escape that problem because everyone individually then has to make his own decisions about what a word means. And then any kind of conversation is no longer two people trying to discern the truth, but each person trying to, in a sense, corral the other person to join, to, to bring him into my way of thinking. You know, it's always right. a, con- a conflict, a di- competition. And it's very Nietzschean, it seems to me, you know, oh, where yes. everybody was, he, he said, it, he predicted this, that everybody's going to become uh, simply running on power, that, that yes. their whole uh, assertion of any kind of fact is simply a, a way of uh, asserting their power over someone else. Right, the will to power. The will to power. Yeah. Uh, so all I'm saying is that it's it, it, to debate the thing t- is almost pointless unless we can get back to the debate about the logos itself right you know cuz what we end up doing is yelling across the aisle at each other uh, you know, you've you've dismissed the meaning of words. No, I haven't. I'm doing something much more righteous than you're doing. I'm trying to assert reality. You know, reality is that words are fluid and we can make of them what we like. And so let's 
use words to, to in a sense, conjure, or maybe that's not the right word, but uh, it's very close to true, um, uh, create a kind of utopian world that we imagine in our minds. Let's, let's, um, let's say, for example, that uh, male and female are, are fluid, Mm-hmm. You know, because if we do, then we can be inclusive of all people who have any questions about their gender. It's, right. it's a kind of compassion, right? Right. right. I, I think that's what motivates them. That's what I mean about trying to get in the heads of them, of, of my opponent in a debate. Uh, I want to give the I want to give the other person every drop of validity I can give him for his position. Right. And yet still. Plato and the and the and the Greeks used to talk about how the truth is something that actually exists between us, not in me or in you, but between us, mm. so that you and I in our conversation can work our way closer to it. Right. We, we want to get closer to it, and we will refine each other's definitions if that's you know clarified, clarify not not change, but clarify each other's mm-hmm. definitions so that we're getting closer and closer to what that that truth is. But what we've done is we've ignored the we've dismissed the idea of uh, of a truth between us mm-hmm. and and now we're we're uh, it's a little like the solar system if you take the sun out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, all the planets would suddenly start flying in a straight line. That's right. You know, no gravity to curve the line. Yeah. And uh, everything would go in its own direction and I don't see how anybody gets along there. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what Nietzsche says in his parable of the madman, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. It's like we've untethered the earth from the sun. Yeah. Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? That's right. He says. Yeah, I know. That's, that's exactly right. We've, we've, we've elimin- eliminated that central pull, that logocentrism. Right. And, and that really is the inevitable consequence of the denial of God. I mean, Nietzsche right. was right about that. Yeah, yeah, um, astoundingly right. Because, like, if, you know, again, to, to go back to Aquinas's correspondence theory of truth, without God, there is nothing to guarantee that our minds do correspond to reality. Right. We're just molecules in motion. We're evolved yeah. apes. Yeah. What reason do we have to think that our minds do correspond to a, a, an external world? Exactly. Exactly. Aren't we being fooled at, all, at every minute? By our senses and and, right. and so on, yeah, I know what you mean. I would I would like to turn a corner for a second here, and with the rest of the the program, um, talk about the profundity of a logocentric view and where we get it and where we get it from the scriptures. What what uh, what what lights up when we talk about language from the from the scriptures, and how it is that language is used in the scriptures. To coordinate between uh, between the visible world, the things that we can know and, and touch and sense with our five senses, mm-hmm. and the spiritual realities that are out there mm-hmm. that aren't t- t- uh, uh, sensible, right? But it seems to me that um, that the, that reality has both a physical, tangible, uh, material mm-hmm. element and an immaterial element. Uh, and actually, those two things are in a kind of hierarchy because it's the immaterial God, the God that is completely invisible, triune God, who spoke the world into existence to begin with. So the material world depends for its existence from the immaterial world, if right. you think of it that way. Right. Well, then what language does is make concrete something that is, is immaterial, Yes. You know, an idea in your mind, the, the idea in my mind I'm trying to get across to you right now, uh, is only viable if I can craft a sentence that makes sense to offer it to you. you That's know, right. To, to, to generate across. And so we have a common language for the purposes of making the immaterial material. Yes. Kind of. Is yeah, that right? Right. Yeah. So I think about art, too, in that Art is, does the same thing. Art is a kind of a language. I'm talking about music, generally art, painting, poetry, certainly, but, but also uh, music and film and everything, where a, a creator has an idea and he crafts the, the material, either the film or the clay or the sound in the music or the paint on the canvas, uh, in such a way as to convey the thing he wants to convey and use that as a medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that's what we call it, isn't it? A medium. Mm-hmm. And a medium is something that's in between us. 
you right, know? Right. Something, a medium is that on the rack between small and large. <laughs> small and large are actually sizes. Medium isn't. Medium is that midpoint between them, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so we talk about the media. We talk about the media, like the newspapers and television and cable news and on, on the internet and so on, as, a, as media, the plural of medium, because it conveys the information from the event to the spectator, you know, right, to the, right. right? So we have mediums, we have media, and we have, and language is, is a medium by which communication can happen. So it seems to me that um, if we don't believe in God, if we don't believe in this spiritual, invisible aspect of reality, then the, the work of the medium is is destroyed. The, the work of the medium is at least uh, uh, hobbled because yeah. it's no longer trying to open your eyes to something that you can't see. Right. There's nothing to mediate. There's nothing there to mediate. Exactly. So it's not surprising to me that art in our day and language have become self-centered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that we, we stop creating things. We right. still paint pictures. We still write poems. Mm-hmm. But... We don't write them or paint them in such a way as to get across something that's transcendent. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes just a means of crafting me, uh, right. of expressing me, right. my own personal expression. And doesn't that sound a lot like the way language is being used today, right? I want, to use, I want you to use these pronouns for me right. because I want you to uh, agree with my vision of myself. I'm, I'm right. explaining it to you that way. Right, and and that um, fits with what s- several contemporary philosophers have called the the modern mindset of expressive individualism. Right, it's an idea that right. goes back to Robert Bella, Charles Taylor, Charles Taylor, right, Carl Truman. Carl Truman has picked up on it lately. Yep, right, yeah, very good. And um, and Philip Reef, yes, right, in the sixties talked about uh, that same kind of idea. Well, it seems like that that is a nor. In other words, it's not shouldn't surprise us that this is the way things have gone in a culture that has dismissed the notion of the logos. So, how can we re-enchant mm-hmm. language yeah. with the transcendent? Yeah, you know, it, we we have uh, a, a description of creation in Genesis mm-hmm. where God speaks the creation That's into right. existence. Yes. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't imagine it in his head and then never speak it. Somehow mm-hmm. there's a word there that's mm-hmm. spoken, right? Um, I'm told, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but you are, and maybe you could tell me if I've got this right. My understanding of the, 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 the sentence we translate, let there be light, mm-hmm. is only two words. My that's understanding right. is that it's, that it's light be, yehi or. Is yes, that right? yeah, yehi or. Yeah. Yes. So I just think that's very powerful, mm-hmm. you know, th- to think God thought, I'm going to create light now. Light exists. Mm-hmm. Boom. And it happened. I just love that. And then, of course, he spoke all these other things over the next six days into existence, including right. human beings. Yep. But somehow, at the essence of who we are and who the, not who, but what reality is, mm-hmm. is language. Yes. And, and I think Christian theology gives us the resources to make sense of that. Hmm. Um, if we, you know, we look to Scripture and we see that um, God is a Trinity, right? Right. He is the sort of being who is able to communicate because He has communicated His being within Himself for from, eternity, from Father to Son. Yes, right. Yes. And so, Forever. you know, I know we always have to be careful with the analogies that we use to describe the Trinity because it's beyond anything within you know, the creaturely order. However, we are authorized to use the analogies that Scripture itself uses to describe the Trinity. So, Father and Son, for example. Right. Um, Right. And also, the Son as the Word of God. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of theologians have thought about the significance of what what is so fitting about calling the second person of the Trinity the Word of God. I mean, Mm -hmm. well, think about what a word is. It's, It's a concrete expression of verbalization of the understanding of the intellect. And the more perfect the word, the more it corresponds to the understanding of the mind. Mm-hmm. Now, take that idea, extrapolate it by infinite, infinity, mm. think of the most perfect word. 
that can, that can encapsulate the fullness of a mind's understanding. That's essentially what the Son is to the Father. Mm -hmm. He is the fullness of the Father's understanding communicated mm -hmm. in a word. Wow. To the extent that He is all that the Father knows and all that the Father is. Yes. And He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. That's right. The Father and I are one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, the Reformed theologian Herman Bovink goes Bovink. so far as to say that if God were not triune, he would not be able to create. Hmm. Hmm. Be because be he has to have some element apart from himself to communicate to. Right. It's a triune God that has the ability to communicate, yeah. to speak the world into existence. Yeah, that's marvelous. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the Trinity is just one of a number of theological principles that help, help us to make sense of the nature of language and reality. I think another one that you've kind of hinted at is the doctrine of the sacrament. Right. Right. A visible sign pointing towards an invisible reality. Right. And, you know, of course, you know, Christ has instituted sacraments for the church, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right. And yet there is a sense in which reality itself is sacramental. I agree. That it points towards a transcendent reality. Right. And because it functions as a receptacle of transcendent meaning, it has greater value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that what you're talking about really is general revelation. Yes. Right? The revelation that we find in the created order. And of the two, general and special, general revelation is older. That's right. It precedes <laughs> around revelation. a long time old. That's right. Now, we want to always interpret general revelation in light of or through the lens of uh, special revelation. Right. But special revelation at many points, uh, the Bible in particular, at many points, points us to look to this general revelation for uh, inspiration and vision of who God is. Right. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Uh, Romans 1, I come think about, uh, is where, where uh, Paul says that if you've seen the world, basically you've got no excuse. You've got to realize that there's right. a God. How can you not if you look at it too, you know, carefully? Yep. So, uh, yeah, I think we ought to be very much aware of that. But that implies, do you see, see the implication? You see it, I know, but I mean, one needs to see the implication that then that means that there is a reality out there that's immutable. Yes, I, some wag told me one time that if we talk about the Trinity for too many minutes, we'll go into heresy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're, you're exactly right. We can certainly talk about the Trinity in the way that the Scripture talks about the, the Trinity, and that means Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. Um, yeah, and I think, I, I thought, I've thought about the, um, you know, the God of, the, of, of, of Islam, uh, Allah, is not triune. Right. right, they wouldn't describe him as triune. They, the triune, they themselves would say, Allah is one. He's that's all. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me that if um, I mean, Bavink was saying that you can't if you're if you're uni like that, then you don't have anyone to speak to about right. things. There's no there's no community within mm. God. Right, and so there's no one to love. Right. And so, if, you, if this God wanted someone to love, if he wanted to express some kind of love, he would have to create someone in order to love. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of the triune God is that love is inherent to him and has gone on throughout all of eternity. Right. And so he didn't need to make anything. Right. There was no, no essential need that he had. Right. Uh, he, so he, he created out of something else. He created out of love, out of creativity, out of delight for making and, and so on. And makes him a very different God. Yes. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that idea of him speaking things into existence and then the word being the, the second person of the Trinity that gives us definitions for words. That gives us, um, the scripture then becomes uh, the way that we define words. For example, love. People want to say, well, love is a sort of warm, gushy feeling that you have for someone else. Uh, and the scripture says that love, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, mm -hmm. which is a, a very different thing. It's an action, first of all, and not a, not a feeling. Right, because right? you can lay lay your life down without feeling like doing it, 
but but because it's an action. So the picture of the love of God for us is uh, is defined for us in the crucifixion, in the willingness that He had to become uh, uh, be incarnate, incarnated to begin with. Uh, we have a God then that exhibits love, um, and it's He's sharing something of the the something of what He has had within the Trinity for eternity. Right? What a what a marvel uh, to do that. And that the, universe, the, the creation of the universe wasn't necessary. Um, so <clears throat> the, um, what, what, what you have then with the community of the Trinity extended this way, you know, like he's inviting us to love as he loves, then we find that we can share with each other in community because of language too, mm-hmm. right? In fact, it's language that makes it possible for community to happen. That's right. We have to be able to use the same terms for things, express the same experiences uh, to one another, and build that kind of camaraderie. So the church, it shouldn't surprise us, but it's, it, the church as a whole is uh, built on the Word uh, on, and, and the use of the Word in accordance with... In fact, now that, I'm, I've always been a kind of amateur etymologist. I <laughs> love the meanings of words, and I think about the old... Old English version of the word gospel, mm-hmm. which was God spell. Yes. And we use that word spell these days, not only to spell words, mm-hmm. you know, but we use it in sort of Harry Potter world where yeah. we cast spells, yes. you know. But in reality, that's what's going on when God uses words. He's spelling the universe. He's yes. making it happen. And uh, the enchantment of that created world exists because of the fact that, in a sense, God spelled it into, into existence. Uh, and the gospel itself is a, a word of truth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of, of a, word, a word of truth to the people and can be embraced and, and believed. And the other thing is to confess. I think about the word confess, to speak with, to say mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Someone, in this case, God. If God said X is sin, and I say yes, X is sin, and I should repent of it, I'm in a sense confessing. I'm saying to God, I agree with you. Yes, you see what I mean. Yes, but it's 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 the agreement of language again. It's fessing. It's speaking. Uh, so, the language itself, our language itself, betrays these kinds of logocentrisms. It seems to me. So Derrida and Foucault and the others have got a long, hard road. It seems to 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 pull up, to weed out of our thinking this kind of logocentrism. Don't you think? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so if it if if uh, think about the think about the 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 root of the word communion. And community, mm-hmm. and and common, mm-hmm. you know, all of that has that idea of unity in it, bringing people together. So community and have, having communion together in the church, um, and uh, and having some sort of commonality or common um, uh, definitions of words and so on, building community. It's all there, isn't it? Right, and, and in order to have that community, you have to have. Agreed upon rules, right? Right, so and grammatical so, rules. So grammatical rules, for example, there has to be agreed upon meanings, right, to words, and so um, th- that's why you know lang- language functions as that medium that allows us to to exist in community, right? If we agree upon the same rules, yes, right, yeah, that's right, that's right. So language has this has this ability to see through the material to the transcendent, like we were talking about before. And that seems to me very metaphoric. We use the word sacramental, and I I love that word. I think that's right. Uh, as long as people understand we're not adding sacraments to the ch- to the church. It's not a capital S sacrament. Right, lowercase s. Lower cri- yeah, because the, because the idea of metaphoric connection like that, connecting the material to the, to the immaterial... Um, is essential to our understanding of not just God, but anything. We, we speak metaphorically all the time. Right. right? Um, I'm thinking about uh, Jesus even saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. You mm-hmm. know, he's, he's using a metaphor, not a simile, if you want to be technical about right. it. He's not saying you're like a, like a branch. He said, you are a branch. Uh, I am the bread, mm-hmm. you know, John 6. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in these cases, he's talking about 
being the thing that he uh, that you that you know as a material thing. So what is he doing? Is he lowering himself to being a vine? Or, or, or being bread? Or is he expanding our understanding of vines and bread mm-hmm. to include our spiritual need and all that too, you know? Seems like it's the second. Uh, but it's not, it's not, not the first. It, he's condescending in his incarnation to come down as far as he needs to come, right? right? So it's not, uh, it's not wrong to say that he's, in a sense, a vine mm-hmm. in that way. But but then suddenly vines have a much more profound profile, or they should in our understanding, yes. because they can image, that's the wrong, I don't want a verb here, uh, they can um, uh, envision or they can reflect, reflect yeah, a kind of uh, spiritual reality that we couldn't see any other way. That's right. I mean, so w- when we think about what God is, I mean, he is infinite, right? right. He is eternal. He is immutable. Given the kind of being that God is, there are only we're limited in our ability to speak about Him. Really, right. I mean, theologians would say there's really two ways we can talk about God: either through analogy or through negation. We can either say what He's like or what He's not. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, right. And so, um, what that means then is all these metaphors that Jesus uses to describe Himself. Those are the necessary means by which we know God. Every approach to God is through analogy because he's so above and beyond right. our capacity of understanding. Right. right. He is incomprehensible. He's always talked about in metaphoric terms, like he's a king. Right. Or he's a shepherd. Or a father. Or a father, exactly. Right. But he is also the one who made this created world yeah. so that those analogies do have a correspondence to who he is. Right. That's right. why it's proper for us to use these metaphors yeah. and analogies. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I remember thinking about that and kind of flipping it around in my head where to begin with I was thinking, well, the, the disciples hearing about the vine and branch would recognize that uh, they, they can see vines and branches. Oh, I, I get the connection you're saying. Okay, he's like a vine and I'm like a branch. Mm-hmm. I get that. But what you're saying is more, even more profound, I think, it's, it's that and more, which is God made the vine and branch himself. In fact, the one who was saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches, is the one who, who spoke vines into being, right? That's right. So he made the vine and branch to look like him. Yes. He's the original and it's the imitation, if you will. That's the right. reflection of right. it. It's, it almost makes you think that the whole world then becomes a kind of very complicated sermon illustration. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all the stars, all the planets, all of the, you know, doors and bread and digestion that needs to exist to uh, exist to, to eat the bread and, and proper properly uh, make use of it and and the way our eyes work, you know, so that we see light and we see metaphor of in light that light enlightens us and helps us see and and uh, metaphorically see, like it helps us understand things. Uh, all of those things aren't by accident. They're they're intended. They're designed. They're they're for our for our benefit to see. And so then you start thinking, where well, when when the psalmist says the heavens are telling the glory of God, you understand it. The when Paul says, if you just think about it for a second, the world screams God at you, right? Have you ever read Michael Behe's book, uh, Darwin's Black Box? I sure have. You have? Yes. Fascinating book. Yes. The middle part of it was over my head. The, <laughs> yeah, the bacterial flagella. And and, right, yeah, right. But the idea of, a, of, of unreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity, yeah, yes. was brilliant, I thought. Uh, yeah, really I agree. brilliant idea. And he was looking at whether he's making the argument for God or not. He's, he's at least making the argument that, that these things can't have happened accidentally. Mm-hmm. They had to work together, otherwise they would not have been of any use. And mm-hmm. it's like that with studying cells or studying you know, biology and, uh, or botany, any mm-hmm. kind of understanding of plants, any kind of understanding of, of the... You start thinking, you've had, you've had a child, I've had a child. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the idea of a, the conception of a child is a miracle. That's right. I don't know how on earth anybody can see it otherwise. Mm-hmm. We want to say that the conception of Jesus was miraculous, and it certainly was. But the conception of any child is kind of miraculous, if That's you think right. about it. Nobody understands how that really happens. So we are living in the middle of a mystery. 
of, mm -hmm. a, of a magical kind of mysterious world that God has made and, uh, and, uh, and is for our contemplation. That's right. A wonderful thing. Well, to be able to communicate with you about this is very good for me because uh, I think uh, our listeners need to hear um, uh, how it is that people who study words, you're a pastor uh, and you're a linguist, so you have an appreciation for it. And I'm a musician and a, and a professor, and I have a love for language and communication too. And um, I think that needs to be stoked in our uh, culture these days, that, that love of language and communication, and to regain that notion that the truth is something that's immutable outside of us that we can get closer to by way of experiment and conversation and communication and and all of that. Well, I appreciate what you're doing over at Westminster, too, um, about language for the faculty there, tying it back to the Logos. Um, one of the great things about classical education is that it's a return ad fontes to, yes. to uh, original languages, uh, in particular Latin. Um, can you uh, give us a good apology for why Latin should be taught still a dead language like that? Many people want to say, well, why aren't we teaching live languages like French or something? But, but is, there a, is there a particular reason why Latin would be a good thing to do? Sure. I mean, I think there are a number of reasons why it's helpful to study Latin. I mean, um, you know, beyond sort of like the, the, the measurable benefits we know that students have from studying Latin, I mean, they, they have better academic achievement really? in, in other measures so when it, it comes shows. to analytical thinking, for example, because they're able to... Um, uh, break down a language according to its 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 case mm -hmm. and, and its gender mm -hmm. and its tenses and so and root meanings and, root and meanings. then adding suffixes and and, and so on yeah. exactly and so it gives them a better stun a better understanding of of the English language mm. but it also helps to e equip them in other fields of study as well that's kind of the the pragmatic argument for studying Latin right um, there's also the historical argument for studying Latin which is like uh, a, a lot of the key sources in, in Western history were written in Latin, especially, mm -hmm. you know, in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period. Mm -hmm. um, but I think even beyond that, there's a more fundamental argument you could make that it, it's about honoring our past. Ah, right. That, um, you know, we are the heirs of a great tradition mm. that was passed down to us through the medium of the Latin language. Mm -hmm. And so by studying that language, not only do we recognize how we've been influenced by, by it, but it's a way of giving homage to those who have come before us. Right, right. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant idea. That fifth commandment, I think, needs to be applied. You know, love your parents, honor your parents. Uh, and it's not just your biological parents, it's your cultural parents uh, that need to be honored as well. So, yeah, there's a love for the, there's an inherent love of the, of the past, I think, in, uh, in the Judeo-Christian worldview yes. that, that is being erased today. Yes. Uh, the, the opposite is, yeah. The, the, we're thinking about this Douglas Murray book, The War on the West, and uh, he, he spends a lot of time talking about how the modern mind or the postmodern mind is, is attempting to undermine and dismiss the, the Western traditions, the Western canon, the Western way of understanding education. Um, and it's a very good book. I, I, we recommend it, uh, that everybody should take a look at it. Douglas Murray is an interesting fellow. He, I wouldn't think he'd claim himself to be a Christian. He probably claims to be an atheist. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but, but nevertheless, he has a real respect for and appreciation of what's being lost uh, today. So we recommend that book. Did you have another book you'd like to tell us about? What are you reading these days? Uh, I'm always reading a couple books these days. Yeah, yeah, but um, but uh, let's see. Currently, uh, I've been reading about um, the topic of free will. There's all kinds oh, of debates that Christians have yeah. on that topic. I just finished a book by Thaddeus Williams uh, called God Reforms Hearts. It's an exploration of the, of the yeah. role of free will in answering the problem of evil. Uh -huh. And it's a fantastic little book. Um, and so I just wrote a book review of that on my blog, allkirk.net. Good. Um, so there's that one. And then there's another book that's soon to be published 
um, which I'm curious to get my hands on. I've pre-ordered it on Amazon. It's called The Case for Christian Nationalism. Yes, I've ordered it too. I'm yep. looking forward to seeing that. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. I think it's about 450 pages. Yeah. But I know the author. His name is uh, Stephen Wolf, and he, Stephen he's Wolf. got their credentials. He knows the background in um, Protestant uh, thought, and mm-hmm. he's well-read in Aquinas. And so um, I'm curious to see the kind of argument that he makes. That's a big issue today, isn't it? A lot of people are arguing that Christian nationalism is in itself inherently bad, right? A, a kind of white nationalism that's pseudo-Nazi fascist right. kind of thing, right? And I'm sure he's going to give us a more nuanced view of that. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward good. to seeing what he has to We've say. We've been watching the elections in uh, Europe these day, days, and the, the new uh, uh, prime minister of Italy is a Italian nationalist. Mm-hmm. And there is a large portion uh, of the... Um, of the uh, legislature in Sweden that is now calling themselves Swedish nationalists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And much to the horror of of those on the left in Europe. Um, And I was reading a New York Times piece the other day that just described, you know, the the woman from, I forget her name, Giovanna Mazzoni, maybe, I'm, I'm guessing. I think that's close. But anyway, the new prime minister... They they'll say, well, she's the prime minister of a part in a party that was fascist that mm. was started by Mussolini, for example, and that the 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 party uh, in Sweden uh, was started by uh, uh, neo Nazis, mm. you know, and the fact that each of them have dismissed that 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 aspect of their party that's long gone, it's old old history, you know, mm. uh, is not talked about very much uh, in the New York Times article I read. But anyway, it's fascinating to see what's going on. There is a kind of a right-wing backlash or something that's coming that's, that's nationalist, and the argument against it is pretty ugly. That's right. You know, pretty ugly. And I'm, I'm not sh- I don't doubt that there are individuals who would call themselves uh, nationalists and mean fascism. Mm-hmm. But I think they're really minority. That's I, right. I'm, I'm more and more convinced that that's a, that's a, a, a red herring you yeah. know, argument. Yeah. So most of the time they're, they're eliminated from the, the conversation pretty darn quickly. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Kyle, for your time. And uh, let's continue on discussing these issues. Um, But I particularly wanted to establish one on language to begin with because how language is used is essential and where, who has the authority to uh, define language is essential. And if we all can get that argument under our belts, then maybe we can put, push forward with, uh, from, from what we described as a biblical notion of language. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. Uh, if you've got questions you'd like to comment or, or ask us about any of this, we'd be glad to talk to you about it. Uh, just email me at director at centerws.com and we will look forward to talking to you next time.